What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 2019, the first Strange Realities Conference took place in Nashville, Tennessee. The pandemic and turmoil the following year could not stop 2020's conference from thriving in cyberspace as a live streaming event. Now, for 2021, the third annual Strange Realities Conference will combine these worlds into a paranormal hybrid event, live in person in Nashville and streaming online. Join us in exploring just how truly strange our reality can be with an interdimensional lineup of speakers presenting unique and intellectual perspectives on magic, mysteries, and the paranormal. Featuring Alan Greenfield, Dr. J. Michael Bennett, a.k.a. Dr. Future, Tim Banal, Soraya Asgath, Dr. Stephen Finley, Aaron Gullius, Amy Pachula, Brent Raines, Chris Ernst, Heather Mosher, Michael Hughes, Jose Herrera, Joshua Cutchin, Kiki Dombrowski, Nathan Isaac, P.D. Newman, Stephen Snyder, a.k.a. Recluse, David Metcalf, Timothy Renner, Steve Stockton, and Brent Collier. Tickets available at StrangeRealitiesConference.com. It's going to be amazing. All right, guys. Welcome back to Conspiranormal. I am uh, feeling much better. And uh, Surfiel is here right next to me. And we have sitting in yet again, Mr. Chris Corey. He's been uh, helping us out as kind of a you know unofficial co-host lately um, when we need him. And uh, oh shucks, oh shucks, always and invite him on for the UFO <laughs> Titans. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we we're gonna have. I, th- I hope. Uh, I think a good discussion tonight. I think we're gonna we're co- we'll cover some ground. Uh, but Peter Robbins is with us. Um, it has been far too long since we've had Peter on. I think it was middle of 2018, I think, I had you on, Peter. We talked about uh, Forrestal, uh, I believe, was the was the topic we covered. And we've, we've had you on several times. I've had the, the absolute pleasure of uh, staying with you up there in Ithaca and uh, hanging out with you and seeing some cool stuff um, that you've shown me and um, if anybody wants to go to the Patreon, it's there somewhere. Are two episodes where Peter talks about a trip that he took overland 
to through like the Middle East and Pac- uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan into India. That is uh, really cool uh, to talk about. One which I recorded there with Peter. But uh, welcome back to uh, Conspiracy Normal, Peter. It's awesome. Thank you. Good to be back, and I'm glad you're on the mend, my friend. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, it's uh, it, you know, most of the time it was uh, it was pretty boring, but uh, I watched a lot of movies. I can tell you that. So <laughs> nothing wrong I'll, with that. I'll be ready to talk to Sarai about movies tomorrow night. But um, I thought we would start off, Peter, uh, since we haven't talked to you in a while, and um, we thought we talk about Tim Beckley a little bit and some of your memories of him and uh, some of the things that you that you did with him. And well, for any of your viewers who are not aware of who Timothy Green Beckley was, he was um, certainly one of the most significant. Uh, UFO researchers, investigators, publishers, uh, spokespeople from the get-go. We lost him several months ago. Um, He had suffered uh, from heart disease for some years before that, and it took a guy who was incredibly vital and all over the place in the best sense of the word and um, just living life to the hilt in many respects um, and sidelined him to a great degree, slowed him down. But um, he was a good and true friend of mine from about 1980. But Tim became involved in the subject of UFOs and UFO research and study when he was a kid. Um, he was publishing his first magazine when he was a young teenager. I mean, mimeographing it. But he went on to publish probably several dozen different magazines over the decades that followed. Um, right now, you know, newsstand magazines are like unicorns. They're mythological. There really aren't any major regular print UFO publications left, except for some scholarly ones. And But there was a time that was a golden age of it, and a lot of great and goofy, uh, very serious and very kind of pulpy and sensational and everything in between publications. And he published them all. Um, he was extremely colorful guy. Um, when I first met him, I was only a few years into the work and my obsession with the subject. And I remember when he first came to my attention, I was kind of warned away from him in that he wasn't serious. Mm. Uh, well, he was a lot more serious than I knew and than they knew, but he, his public persona was bleach blonde hair, sunglasses, rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Um, have a good time as much of the time as possible. Um, party till the house comes down and keep the UFO publications going. He also was a brilliant conference organizer and put together so many conferences over the years, many of them in the Southwest. And one thing about Tim's conferences, they had first rate speakers, 
but they were also known for having the best and the wildest parties, and some of them completely rock and roll out of hand. Um, when we did connect, though, in 1980 or so, it was coming back from a conference that ran for some years in New Jersey. It ran out of a motel there and actually had the name of the International UFO Congress or something very much like the real one that we have now, but it was more regional to be kind than it was international, but it had great speakers and we ended up getting a ride back to the city together. And he just was telling stories the whole way back and completely cracking me up. And I realized this is a good and a good and real friend was also uh, at the time that my sister's career was absolutely on fire and that she was performing all over New York and the tri-state area. And Tim and her hit it off big and became good friends. And he started to show up at all her gigs at CBGB's and the Cat Club and um, the Peppermint Lounge and all the clubs that she was playing. And, um, you know, we just had some wonderful times together. I probably, of all of my ufological colleagues over the years, I am sure my intake of illegal mind-altering substances with Tim outdid all of the others together over the years. He got appropriately drunk on so many occasions. Who can remember? Um, but he was always a, a good and true and dedicated guy in the work. He published or republished hundreds of books. His You can go online and find Inner Light Press, huge book catalog that I believe, I, I hope, his uh, former girlfriend, uh, former by death, um, April, is still running or that his family is still running. Many of them are outrageous titles on a certain level, but they are part of the myth, legend, and lore of ufology. Uh, others are reprints of books that were out of print and very much deserve to be back in print. Um, others are um, up-and-coming authors and the like. In New York City, we have something called rent control. I have a feeling you know, a decade from now or less, they're going to find a way in city council to get rid of it. A lot of people, millions of us going back, I'm sure 100 years or so, couldn't have dreamed the dreams or lived the lives we'd lived in New York City without rent control. It was basically you move into an apartment and you're there for as long as you want to be and can be legally but that the landlord can only raise the rent a certain amount every few years, as opposed to market value. You move out and, you know, the neighborhood's been gentrified and the rent doubles or triples or whatever. I think you told me when we were in Little Italy that there were people, older people that were still paying like $100 a month, like paying oh, yeah. basically like what their, what their grandparents or great grandparents would have paid in like the early 20th century. In New York City. When you told me that, that just like blew my mind. <laughs> in fact, some of them were right there in Little Italy. Um, yeah. And these are apartments that now would probably easily go for several thousand dollars a month easily. Um, in some cases, legally, it's a family. And through some aspect of the law, 
it just passes, you know, the, the lease or whatever. I don't know if they've locked that down. But of all of my friends, I still have two or three who were in places they were in, probably going back to the 1970s, both of them in, you know, old 150-year-old tenement walk-ups in the East Village. But they're there, and, you know, maybe they're paying a couple hundred dollars a month rent. Uh, but Tim had the longest rent control lease of anybody that I knew, in, except my grandmother. Um, Tim was living in his apartment on East 30th Street, just off Fifth Avenue, right around the corner from the Empire State Building. Mm -hmm. It was a hole in the wall, um, but it was his. And one by one, over the latter years, the building owner had um, updated, renovated, uh, and really done a great job on every other apartment in the building. But he couldn't get Tim to move out, no matter how much they offered him. And that's where he lived when he died. Um, I think he had been there like 40 years or so, well, at least, wow. Wow. and was paying a very modest amount of money. But holy Christ, the place was, you know, <laughs> was in bad shape. Uh <laughs> The walls, I think, sometimes were held up by books as opposed to holding books. Right, right. And um, I, in the latter years uh, that I haven't been living in Manhattan, I would try to see him every time I went in. Um, we both loved Indian food, and the neighborhood that my grandparents used to live in in the East 20s, it's only a few blocks walk from where Tim lived and had at one point turned into little India. I mean, there were several dozen Indian restaurants within a, a few and Pakistani restaurants within a very small space of a few blocks. So we had our favorites there, uh, but we were going to one in um, the Lower East Side, the East Village, uh, more the last years. Uh, we did a number of interviews and different projects together. Um, after my sister died, I remember, you know, Tim was always not a hard guy. I mean, an easy laughing guy and everything, but um, he was he was just um, as, as sad and, you know, broken down as anybody at her memorial. Um, and I really hoped we'd have more time together. There are certain people in your life that even if their health isn't great, you still say to yourself, nah, you know, that person's an institution. They're not going to disappear on me. Right. And then they do. And then yeah. they do. Yeah. Um, I miss him very much because I don't have many buddies in ufology going back that far. And because for both of us, we could always let that go and simply have a great time and, you know, not be bothered by, uh, what for a lot of people is a level of not even faux seriousness, but just they don't know how to. Am I allowed to say fuck on this show? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> they don't know how to lighten the fuck up. And um, Tim certainly knew how to do that like a pro. Um, so here's to Tim, Timothy Green Beckley. I love you, dear friend in UFO Valhalla. 
Did you guys, did you ever go on any kind of like investigations or anything with him? Like any kind of like, do any kind of like real, real field work or anything like that? We, <laughs> when we get together, we're usually too busy just having a good time as yeah. opposed to, and then, you know, talking about the investigations and the projects that we were working on at the time. Um, so it was more of a break in the seriousness of the work that I did. And, you know, for him, a very fairly demanding publishing routine. Um, again, it wasn't like now where you write a book, you either independently publish it or find an on-demand publisher. This was, most of his stuff was done. And he still did it that way to a degree where you print books and then you have to warehouse them. And rather than pay a warehouse fee, he did have a space out in New Jersey, but he kept a lot, thousands of copies of books in his apartment. So it was often, you know, negotiating stacks, so to say. And then it's a matter of distribution. I, I have a copy of his last newsletter. I mean, old school. He did major mailings of several thousand pieces every few months of these are the new books. These are, you know, books that I still have in stock, that kind of thing. Um, called the Conspiracy Journal. Mm -hmm. uh, he covered the ground on conspiracies decades before it was trendy to do so. Um, not because he was a conspiracy, not by any stretch of the imagination, but he catered to the markets that were there. And um, he was very savvy as a business person, certainly was able at least to make a living, even if sometimes a borderline living, doing this stuff which I have nothing but respect and envy of, <laughs> frankly. Yeah, his stuff was so ubiquitous. I mean, it was everywhere. Um, you know, like uh, we were over at Surfiel's one night and there was just what, something on his bookshelf. And I think it was the, the Conspiracy Journal, right? Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is, I was reading it and I was like, oh, this is Timothy Green Beckley's stuff and like i don't think Sergio even knew at the time just like <laughs> and i think we had just had him on just like not that that but it was also through tim because he was so established as a presence in the work by the time i even was dipping my toe in it that it was through tim that i got to meet and spend time with people like john keel mm -hmm. and um i um Gray Barker, um, you know, really old school guys. Right. Uh, he had, knew everybody. And um, often, you know, I mean, right now, John Keel, in terms of paranormal research, he is sort of revered the same way that uh, Jacques Vallée is for non-literal, extraterrestrial, theoretical, you know, UFO people. And, um, you know, we, we'd hang out with him in either John's apartment or Tim's apartment, or he'd give a, a small talk in the back of a restaurant. You know, we'd just all hang out and, you know, have sandwiches and coffee together the rest of the afternoon. Um, it was also a time in New York City back then where everything cost so relatively little. Um, it's impossible to almost imagine right now with the costs of, you know, just living in New York City, which drove me out certainly years ago. Um, but you could rent a hall, you know, upstairs from a bookstore or something 
for a hundred dollars, you know, and have an event there that day, that kind of thing. Um, different times. Yeah, for sure. I guess that like, you know, people would come in from like the local area and to the event. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, and it would all be promoted the same way that, you know, musicians promoted their shows at the clubs. Right. You just Xerox up a couple hundred flyers. If uh, you were like my sister, um, you know, you'd color in the lips mm-hmm. on everyone or something mm-hmm. like that, or write something by hand and up on the walls <laughs> and the telephone poles and the sides of buildings and fences, they would go. That's how you did it, you know, and people were putting out zines and hand stapling them. Everything changed, of course, with the advent of the internet and um, the social network. Yeah, organizing our own event, I, I totally understand that. Um, that's cool that you did it did it in the same kind of way. Um, I, did, I guess they had a pretty decent turnout, good turnout to these things. Very often. Yeah. yeah. In retrospect, it was a great time. Yeah. A wonderful time to uh, be living in New York City, certainly, and following whatever your cultural dream was. Uh, we could all afford apartments. You know, not for people, you know, paying more than a grand each to sleep on a couch. Uh, you'd have a hole in the wall in what we would call not a great neighborhood. But, mm-hmm. you know, and weren't earning much at whatever you were doing. But got by for years and years doing that, no problem. And then it changed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think you and I, well, I remember you showing me where CBGBs used to be. And now it's like some... Well, I mean, I guess, well, back five years ago, it was something like a little boutique shop. Very exclusive boutique. Yeah. And, you know, I think it probably might have been less than $1,500 a month when Hilly Crystal opened it in the early mid-70s. And probably that same space now rents for $30,000 a month. Amazing. And I'm not exaggerating. Amazing. Well, back then it was like that was pretty much the Skid Row, right, of New York. Manhattan, oh yeah, at was, least yeah. it was the Bowery, or yeah. just Upper Bowery, so to say, Third Avenue. Historically, a really rough area. Oh yeah. And you just when we when you took me through there, like I think you were telling me just how much it had, it really had changed. Gentrification, the, the great double-edged yeah. sword. Yeah. Chris, was there anything that you wanted to ask about Beckley? Or? Well, uh, I, I was just thinking, um, you know, we're talking about how different the scene used to be with UFO stuff. And I, I was wondering if you think there's anything, not even necessarily like, um, you know, concrete, tangible things like zines or anything, but if, if there's anything that's been lost between that time and now, as far as the UFO scene goes, um, you know, like I think back on some of these big organizations and they had uh, large memberships, but also like staff that were really doing hardcore research. And I I look around now um, and, and, you know, maybe it's just the hindsight, um, you know, talking to me, but I, I wonder what's been lost or what could we maybe get back um, you know, not just in the UFO land, but in, in all of uh, the paranormal world. So uh, maybe you have something to reflect. That's there. a great question, Chris. I've never been asked that before. Um, well, 
to start with, we're genuinely living in a different world. Everything has changed and nothing less than the basic technology by which, you know, we, we live the communication part of our lives. Um, when I first started to get to work, you'll see, as you're looking at me in frame, you see off to my left, they're kind of dark, but it's notebook after notebook with, you know, file labels on them. Some of those go back to the 1970s. And when I first became involved, I mean, initially, and I mean it really at first, first I had no idea there was something called ufology. I didn't know that there were grown-up people out there that studied this stuff. I mean, not that I was shocked when I found out. I didn't know there were UFO conferences. I had a vague awareness that there you know, must be books on the subject, but I had never paid attention to any of them. And as my obsession you know, started to grow, um, I started to pick up magazines on newsstands, many of them quite sensational, and probably a bunch of them published by Tim. Um, the only newspapers that regularly carried articles on UFOs were the tabloids, you know, like the National Enquirer. And back then it was, you know, very over the top, although we now know that one of the great ironies of the whole history of UFO studies is that at the time, um, everything sounded very sensational because it was, still is, especially to if you're, you know, not involved, but that the Enquirer was getting a lot of it right. They were just presenting it in the most outrageous kind of over-the-top way. And when I first started to connect with those first few other people that I, I began to, you know, work in colleagueship with, um, we were all involved to a degree in a journey of self-discovery. Um, the revelation to me a year, two years or so after I, well, within a year, that there were declassified United States government documents from various agencies and offices that they were real and they dealt with the subject, some of them very frankly. I mean, for me, it was a revelation. I could hardly believe that these things were out there. This before the Freedom of Information Act, because there was a declassification process. I think officially it was every three years, certain documents are reviewed. And after 12 years, if they are not seen as a threat to the national security, they're quietly archived in the National Archives, where people like Stan Friedman come upon them, make Xerox copies get them out there, and we started to build our little libraries. Um, but now it also seems so naive. Everybody's so sophisticated. Everybody has all of their, you know, just go into the black vault, and you've got billions of pages, you know, of declassified material to look at, and paranormal UFOs and many other subjects as well. But I remember coming back from Queens, New York, on the subway to my apartment in Chinatown, um, in the late 70s, after meeting with uh, my first real mentor in, in the, the subject, uh, Komen von Kovetsky, who was already in his 70s, certainly um, was, had been a staff officer of the Hungarian army during World War II. 
and um, was in charge of photo reconnaissance and photo analysis for the Hungarian military during the war. And when he finally was able to emigrate to the States in 1952, after I will say uh, uh, an extraordinary seven years of <laughs> leveling his karma, basically, by working um, in Germany, he's multilingual and his job was basically doing his best to reunite Jewish families that had been fractured, people mm. lost in the camps. Yeah. And he and his family were invited to emigrate in early 52, a few months before the well-known Washington overflights and the photographs of the formations of UFOs, fully authentic and still on, you know, um, still very much a reality and not shown as a fraud or anything like that. And he got involved in the subject as a photo analyst and an expert in uh, optics. But he had given me a number of these documents. And I had a briefcase at the time. I was teaching um, art in School of Visual Arts, painting at, at a private school in Brooklyn Heights. And I remember going back on the subway thinking, if people knew what was in this suitcase. Again, now it's like, but those notebooks there, they're basically, when I first got my first computer, which was, you remember the brand Brother? Maybe it's before, it's very basic. It looked like a big, funky plastic typewriter, and it had a half-screen LED readout. readout. Yeah, my parents had a Brother uh, word processor. There you go. That's what this yeah. was. I thought I was on the deck of the fucking Starship <laughs> Enterprise. Uh, a friend of mine gave it to me. And um, I thought, isn't this clever? There's a function in this whole computer world called cut and paste. And I just laughed because my sister and I, um, especially at times when we were roommates, you know, she'd be working on lyric sheets or poetry or short stories. And there'd be, you know, 20 foot lines, 15 foot lines of typing paper with stuff cut out and pasted and, you know, pen indications that you would finally finalize and then pull together and retype on your IBM Selectric typewriter, of course. Um, and those notebooks are filled with that shit. I mean, for me, they're important social documents of the time. They basically document how I got from point A to point B. Um, and conferences were often locally organized, you know, um, in a hotel ballroom um, or a motel ballroom or whatever, it was easier for an individual to put on an event because the layout of cash was modest. Speakers, well, we still get paid crap overall, but you know our cost was negligible. Uh, you'd almost always be sharing a room with another speaker. Um, and ultimately, you know, you started to solicit looking for speaking jobs. I mean, I still do. Um, right now, of course, we're still in, you know, this crazy land time where yeah. there are live events, but more and more is still happening uh, online, understandably so. It's a weird limbo right now. It is. It is. And it will change. Um, but then for me, starting to um, think, I really do want to be a writer. I had the cachet of being Bud Hopkins assistant. So I had that going for me and that gave me a little street cred. But at the same time, 
that even be well um, right about that time when I started, maybe before um, writing out an article and then sending it by mail to this magazine, getting it back, sending it to that magazine, and then selling your first article and getting a check in the mail, you know, whenever, how long later, and a couple of copies of the magazine and the bragging rights that you had. And then you had the beginning of your resume and getting that second article published. Uh, And ultimately for me, 12 years in looking for a book length project, and thinking, oh, this will take a year or two to write and, you know, be a couple of thousand dollars. Um, and ultimately, that book, which did go on to become a top 10 bestseller in the UK, took nine years to write. And uh, the cost between me and my then co-author, although he shouldered most of it, was probably close to $100,000. Never come close to making it back, but that's the way it goes. Um But even then, um, you sell your book, and then it's going to be nine months till it's printed. Why? Because you reserve a place with a press, and they're busy publishing other books, and they've got their schedule all worked out. It's analog, as opposed to, again, now, um, I remember Peanuts cartoon. It's Snoopy. It's three frames sitting on the doghouse reading something. And the first frame is says, congratulations, we've decided to publish your book. And the dog's holding the letter and the ears are straight up in the air. Second frame, the first edition will be an edition of one, ears down. Third frame, if we sell that one, we'll print another. <laughs> years out (laughs) right (laughs) okay well that's what that is print on demand and it's why you don't have to do what tim and other you know much bigger publishers did for well several hundred years print them up hopefully sell them but if you don't put them in a warehouse and pay the warehouse fees and then the shipping fees and then sometimes the return fees uh and destruction fees if you can't sell them that kind of thing um so the process from shaking hands, write the book, to having the book finished, and having copies of the book was a decade. Uh, now, I'm hopefully people write books quicker and don't have psychopathic, sociopathic, lying, forging co-authors like I did. Uh, it makes the process go a bit smoother, I believe. Um, and then the reality of communicating with colleagues. I mean, for me, I have files of letters to and from other colleagues going back to the 1970s, actual letters. One of the things I always loved about um, corresponding with Timothy Good, the great British ufologist, who was what I try to be now when, you know, people approach me looking to do this work and starting out very idealistic, which is to be realistic, but as encouraging as you can, given the circumstances. But Tim's letters were always beautiful, you know, hand-typed on beautiful stationery with matching envelopes and always signed with a fountain pen. You know, that's something that 
no matter how many things you have in your ebook or the idea of, you know, in future ephemera and bibliographic archives, obviously I love books. Um, I'm not just an avid reader, but I am a book collector and I have always revered them since I was a kid. That's the way I was brought up. And the idea that, you know, let's say really important pieces of literature in the future, no matter how important they are, it may sound sentimental, but they won't have an archive copy of the original manuscript typed out with parts crossed out, handwritten with different kinds of inks, you know, revisions, that kind of thing. It'll simply just be a zip file in your computer somewhere. And, you know, it's not good or bad. It's just the way it is. But for the same reason, I'm more than wistful and sometimes kind of horrified that young people are not taught handwriting anymore. It's good luck. You know, you, you'll need this every once in a while to sign your name on something. But handwriting, please. It's still important or it should be important, I think. Uh I might sound, you know, like an old fart on a certain level, but there are certain things in terms of human reality and human behavior that can't be improved upon with technology. Um, again, though, to um, your question, Chris, um, at a certain point, it was you're, you become a public speaker. That's great. Um, now, you know, you have your PowerPoint. It may be just bullet points or, you know, like the way I do it, photograph, drawing, map, close up of headline, you know, tell your story. And it's on, you know, a little drive, no bigger than a chapstick. But for years, we had to travel either with a full Kodak carousel projector wheel of either 80 or 120 slides. And that's, I, I could take a moment and grab one out of the closet, <laughs> but that's major technology. It's like a foot square and, you know, three or four inches deep. And it's a plastic apparatus that sits upon a projector and that, you know, click, click goes around. If you wanted to take a chance and just bring the slides and trust that you'd remember to set it upright or God forbid you would, somebody said, Oh, I'll do that for you. And you think, gee, I'm a big shot because somebody's going to do that for me. And they don't quite get it right. And right meant every slide has to be upside down and backwards. If it ain't, you are fucked. Yeah, and uh, that's it. You know, <laughs> your slideshow is completely fucked. And I had more than one of those experiences, but, uh, you know, that meant that you had to carry a bigger bag or, you know, an extra small suitcase or what have you. Um, I don't miss those, but I remember joking with Stanton Friedman. We were two of the last holdouts. All this new friggin' technology. Just have a Kodak carousel projected there for us. <laughs> no, <laughs> you've got to learn how to do PowerPoint. Yeah, I think we looked at when I was there, Peter, I think we looked at some slides and I hadn't seen slides in a long, long time. Uh, hey, I'll tell you what. I mean, um, I shot for decades with a Nikon F and a Nikon F2, one of the greatest cameras ever made. And the original F, I'm, I, I'm predisposed to Nikon equipment because my mother worked for the company for many years. And uh, in fact, rose to 
a position of being the highest ranking female in the history of this rather sexist corporation. But she used to travel around the country and even traveled in Japan for them. And one of the ways that she would demonstrate this technology was in the old days, the Nikon F, the back came off. It didn't open. It came off. You loaded your film, you screwed the back back on, and then you had like 36 or you know 24 pictures and you're ready to go. Now, not with a lens on it, but just the body with the film in it, the demonstration was she would take it and then slam it as hard as she could on a tabletop. Bang! Like that with the bottom of the camera, then screw the lens on and take pictures. And it always worked great. Um, but I have, you know, I'm in fact, I've got to talk to Soraya too, because he's helping me or assisting me on some level with this project. I have quite a few thousand high quality Kodak photograph, top of the line equipment, lenses, um, code of color slides that need to be transposed to digital images. And, you know, there are so many cheap transfer devices, um, but they don't, they don't capture the original quality. And um, this is important to me, but um, the fact again, that for us, we, that technology, again, may sound sentimental, <clears throat> but you can't, you can't, I don't care. You could have a $10,000 video projector and you can't project a sharper image on a wall or a screen than you can with one of those old fashioned Kodak carousel projectors. I still have two or three in the closet waiting for society to melt down. And uh, then I'll be back in charge. You can teach civilization to the to the new people. You well, got so, it, baby. If we get you to Nashville next year, Peter, you should bring that with you. Just, oh God, I have to hire a bearer to help me. We can hear click, click, click. We'll make sure they're upside down backwards. Next, next slide, next slide. Absolutely, <laughs> that's the mantra: upside down and backwards. Oh yeah, well, my, you know, my dad, my dad was an art teacher, and I mean, he. Uh, I remember slides and all that kind of stuff really well. And they do like eight millimeter, like stop motion, um, claymation kind of stuff. And I remember all that stuff, you know, really well. I was born in the late se- mid to late seventies. So like, I can remember that stuff. Well, that's the technology you were born into. Yeah. Um, again, um, I think the biggest challenge now is, okay, I, I'm all of a sudden interested in UFOs, either intellectually or I saw something or I have a friend who's really into this stuff and has kind of taken me into it. Where do I go? The internet. You've got a zillion places to look. It's a picnic. It's just wonderful. Look at these great images and this great footage and you know this account. Well, a great deal of it is total bullshit. Um, One thing about building a real analog physical library is books either do or don't stand the test of time in terms of nonfiction, in terms of the veracity of the information, its credibility based on, you know, being checked and rechecked or challenged. Um, It's my greatest research tool. Um, At the same time, 
you can go online and, you know, again, look at this amazing piece of footage. Well, it is amazing. But so is Jurassic Park. Um, for several decades now, with basic, you know, uh, computer technology, you can create completely fake realities in terms of visual images or footage. Is the footage that you think is so cool, does it have any kind of pedigree whatsoever? Do we have a name associated with the person who put it online that can be checked out and is a credible real person? Has any attempt been made to locate whether anyone else was there at the time and can verify the fact that they saw it too? Has been any kind, even rudimentary photo analysis of the image and so on? A lot more often than not, the answer is no. But you know what? A lot of people don't care. Uh, it's become kind of a adjunct to a degree of the entertainment industry. Now, I think in the logical world, I mean, I work as a professional communicator. Uh, you guys too, in your own ways. And for me, if I'm hired to speak at a conference or to appear in a documentary, I damn well better not just be accurate in what I say, but communicate it in a way that is interesting and mm -hmm. holds people's attention. If you're looking for a model, think back to one or more, maybe. The teacher that you had in elementary school, middle school, high school, college, you know, a night school course, somebody who communicated something that you were interested in or not interested in, maybe more important, but they did it in a way that made it interesting to you. And part of that was a subtle entertainment aspect that they knew how to hold an audience and do it with some style, but without, you know, fake acting or anything like that. Um, part of, you know, people say, I now especially with, you know, if we want to get everybody and everybody else's faces for a moment, that I researched it on the internet and I am convinced that, you know, the virus is and the vaccine is, I'll say no more, and everybody can fight among yourselves for the rest of your lives. Um, <laughs> that so much of ufology is now, I believe this person and not that person. Um, this person, you know, is a much better speaker, or that one has the cooler website, or, you know, I think this one's a cult leader. This one's a jerk. I met them. This one is a really nice person, but they really are not very effectual at what they're doing. It's become kind of a sad human game on a certain level. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Like more personality-based and less research-driven. It sure is. And that is a huge distraction, especially at this moment, where after almost 75 years, at the least, the ridicule factor, which was so destructive, uh, associated with the UFO subject and taken seriously, has dissipated to the point that leading politicians, scientists to a degree, public figures, world of entertainment, or what have you, can say something in terms of expressing their attitude and seriousness about the subject without it threatening their careers or being totally humiliating. That's a huge sea change. That's major, and that's healthy, and that's good. But don't kid yourself. We're hardly on the edge of the age of Aquarius here. The United States government will never willingly unless their hand is forced in ways we can only guess at, say, yes, it's not only real, and that's a fact, but there's this other icky stuff attached that sooner or later we've got to get to. Um, exotic technology, they the machines are beyond our imagining, but it, they're machines, and occasionally they go down. And we have gotten some over the years, and we have reverse engineered them, and some of the technology that you don't even think of every day is drawn from them. Although that argument, I can take it or leave it. If it proves to be true, sure, why not? I won't lose a moment's sleep. But like my friend, colleague, uh, most important mentor and um, boss for a good amount of time, Bud Hopkins, his attitude I thought was really good and grounded, which was at our best. We human beings are capable of literally anything we put our minds to, even peace, if we put our minds to it and take the risks involved in taking a chance and trusting another entity, country, you know, uh, belief system, what have you. And the other thing is, oh, yeah, there's this other key thing, like part of this whole abduction thing, which is real, ladies and gentlemen, is that there are beings out there that have been created that are part us and part them. And no, it's not science fiction. Oh, did we get to the part about missing pregnancies? And so on. You know, they will play footsie with this for decades if they can. I don't think it's going to take that long. But the report that came out of the Pentagon in June, you know, Shakespearean terms, much ado about nothing, not quite, but it's all was stage managed as far as I'm concerned on a certain level. And just updating the, the way it's been handled for decades. Of, it could be the Russians. Well, now it also could be the Chinese. Right. You know, um, we, the Navy that are making uh, this uh, big splash right now, 
excuse the pun, in terms of taking attention because of the uh, Tic Tac cases and the witnesses that came forward Mm -hmm. years ago. But, you know, we're looking at them now. They're major people in the field and should be respected for their courage and the fact that they are authentic and uh, some terrific people in there. Um, But that it could be something even more exotic. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe there's a chance they're, you know, spacemen and these are flying saucers in so many words. Of course they know that this is true and they've known it from the get-go, but you can't come out and say it because the first thing that is implied by that is, oh yeah, we've been lying to you for three quarters of a century. And that is awkward, especially on the presidential level, which means that every single United States president willingly or unwillingly, because they've only been briefed on what the secret keepers want them to know. Truman knew as much as anybody could know. Eisenhower probably as well. Reagan to a degree because the intelligence community loved him. Kennedy probably hardly at all, except that he had his own sources of information and was probably naval intelligence during the war, as well as a genuine legitimate war hero. Um, Carter to a degree, um, and so on. But the implication is that every single president, conservative, liberal, Republican, Democratic, has been an undided, unindicted co-conspirator in the greatest cover-up in history. And that's a touchy point for people who, to a degree, have a certain amount of their thinking going into, what will my place in history look like? Not the way the four of us think, as a rule, unless... Adam, are you, do you think a lot about how your place in history is going to be uh, uh, seen? <laughs> it's forever <laughs> preserved. And statues of you that will grow up in Nashville. You know, I'm scared of that. So, you know. I'm, I'm <laughs> Understandably. Especially some, the, especially some of the earlier uh, shows of Conspiranormal. Uh, anyway, to cut to the chase, your original question, Chris, is how have things changed? Well, they've changed a lot. What can we do about them? We can do our best to hold ourselves to the highest standards, if you're like me, and you still do research investigation to a degree, um, to hold yourself to the highest standard of it. If you screw up, and we all do sooner or later, never try to macho your way through it. That, you know, George Bush, Dick Cheney, John Wayne, real men don't admit they make mistakes. You just say screw it to the world and you hope people forget. And if they don't, who cares? Because real men don't admit that. That's a terrible way to be. You clean it up. You take responsibility. Also, for me, after 40 years of you know working in much more analog positions, everything from you know research assistant to researcher to um investigator to writer to author to activist to conference speaker to participant in documentaries i now do a weekly radio show and it's not only aimed to build an audience of everybody that listens to um conspiratorial and other ufo and paranormal shows i am doing my best to also build an audience of people that have never had any interest in a UFO-related or paranormal-related radio show or broadcast. And I'm now about 35 
episodes in to Meanwhile Here on Earth. I'm very proud of how it's going. And for me, it's the tool that I'm now really focusing on using to bring the best accounts, the most believable and respected people in the field overall, interesting panel discussions, often talking about difficult topics. Uh, last night, um, I had two Protestant ministers, two lay Catholic scholars, and a rabbi on to discuss UFOs and religion. Uh, about six weeks ago, five weeks ago, I had on five or six women abductee experiencers who were all active as researchers, investigators, authors, uh, activists in the field who are also mothers talking about this. And I didn't consider it a novelty. You know, a panel discussion in ufology, like most other things, is a bunch of guys or a bunch of guys and a woman. Here she is, mm -hmm. folks. Um, a woman, blah, 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 as opposed to a woman. And I thought, enough of this. Let, there are issues that women deal with in abduction and experience her accounts and as mothers that guys don't, certainly not as a rule. And I'm, I'm going to do that again because it was a really interesting panel. Um, but it's often authors, filmmakers, um, researchers, you name it. Again, I think no matter how cool the technology no matter how much attention the sideshow of personalities and conspiracies and claims and counterclaims become, the best we can do is the best we can do. And again, let's hold ourselves to a high standard, communicate information that you've checked out, ideally, or that you can stand behind, or give it a fair airing in a pro and con kind of situation at the same time, I know, you know better because you've been doing it a lot longer, um, to do interesting radio that's educational without, you know, uh, that kind of aspect. Um, infotainment, if you will, mm -hmm. but heavy on the info. Some of the best shows that I feel that, that I've done have been some of the roundtables um, I had on one of my favorite episodes early on was the show that I did with Guy Malone and uh, Reverend Michael Carter. And both of which have had um, experiences and both of which consider themselves Christian. And Michael Reverend Carter is a Unitarian minister. I think you've we met haven't him, met, but yeah. we have become friends. Yeah. He's a good guy. And uh, I know, you know, guy as well. And, um, you know, that was interesting because they, you know, they just came at it. They they had the almost exactly the same kind of experiences, but the way they interpreted it was so much different. And, yeah, uh, I think I got them to agree more than they disagreed with each <laughs> other, and that that was one of my favorites. Before we kind of move, I wanted to move on and talk a little bit about Blue Oyster Cult, uh, you know, because Chris Corey down there is a fan. Um, I did want to ask you just kind of like on what you're talking about. Uh, with the latest kind of UFO news and all that. Robert Bigelow has been big in the UFO research and some of like the funding. Um, actually, I think he bought or had access to MUFON's files and, and those type of things. Some of the latest um, 
information and like these reports that we've gotten over the last what has it been four years now since 2017 and the latest one how much about some of this is like due to like kind of space militarization you know whatever your your thoughts on ufos are i mean i think there is a certain amount during the cold war of using this mysterious phenomenon as a way to hide whatever they were doing like the the stealth or the sr-71 and these type of experimental aircraft and whether they're doing the same type of thing but you know like like using it as a cover that we got to militarize space because under existing treaties you're not supposed to do that but we all know that at least since the 80s that that's been going on i would say probably yeah but it hasn't been an area of intense interest that I have been pursuing the last few years. I keep up on it to a degree, but I'm certainly no spokesman on, you know, what's the breaking reality there. Um, I think so many people have been so focused on the government has said something. And since late 2017, uh, the breakthrough really occurred through a series of articles in the New York Times, um, which, like it or hate it, is still a juggernaut of uh, power and influence in American media, and certainly, and especially American print media. Um, a lot of people think it began in December with a uh, pair of articles that appeared in the Sunday edition of the paper. And even though one of them began with a very small box, it was on the first page. And bragging rights for a UFO article on a Sunday edition, which is their biggest weekly seller uh, on the UFO subject, is is major. And it was a very distinguished journalist who has done some wonderful work in terms of um, bringing UFO subject to a wider, uh, more serious, serious establishment audience, uh, the great Leslie Kane. Uh, Ralph Blumenthal, a very distinguished staff writer for the Times for many years, who has gone on to a professorship now, I believe, but not before producing a fascinating uh, full-length biography on Dr. John Mack, uh, an important contributor to the subject of um, UFO contact, abduction, uh, human contact, etc. In fact, um, it goes back earlier in 2017 when the Times uh, assigned Blumenthal to travel up to Syracuse, New York, and meet with a UFO statistician named Cheryl Costa. And the article on Cheryl's work about UFO statistics around the country was very unusually received and written up in a respectful manner. I say that from the point of view, and I probably have bragging rights on this, being the only person in the world of UFO studies who has ever read every single article, editorial, letter to the editor, photo caption, etc., dealing with the subject of flying saucers, uh, unidentified aerial phenomena, UFOs, UAPs, since the first ones were published in 1947. Uh, it's a project that I made my business and try to keep up with. And it turned. I, I, I don't know whether there was some guidance from above 
or that this was manufactured in some way, or the media maybe was just kind of tired of joking about something that in their heart of hearts they knew was serious. Um, but a tremendous amount of tension has been taken, I think, focusing in on the novelty of this moment that we've moved into time, in time, of, gosh, the world is starting to take the subject seriously. Some of us wondered if that would ever happen in our lifetimes, and it's a breath of fresh air. I think, though, it doesn't have to do with some quiet willingness on the part of the secret keepers um, who are not elected, who are nameless to a certain degree, and who hold on to their jobs when presidents and you know elected officials come and go. It's more that the secret keepers kind of lost control of the narrative. And in a good way, I think that was in great part driven by what works about the internet and this subject. Too many people were learning too much about the reality of the subject, taking it more seriously in more ways than it had ever been done before, encouraging other people to do the same to such a degree that you could no longer get away with saying, well, it's probably, you know, a mass hallucination or war jitters or swamp gas or a refraction on the retina or a reflection on a weather front from a errant car light. They kind of lost their ability to do it. Now we can make fun of that stuff rather than, oh, well, if that's what it is. And also the brilliance of the way that in the summer of 1947, in a very concerted campaign that um, I've researched extensively and find fascinating on how the ridicule started, because it makes no sense in a logical way. I saw something in the sky that I never saw before. And it did things that nothing I imagined that could fly did. I wonder what it was and where it came from. How did that get wired up with, you're crazy. You want to feel special. You're delusional. You want to be famous. You want to make money. You want to fool me. Fucking brilliant, right? But they did it. And it was mostly um, the media. I'm sure, again, the secret keepers uh, were at the least pleased about it probably encouraging. I don't think they needed too much encouragement. And once that pattern was set, that it was understood in Western culture that you take flying saucers seriously, you must believe in, you know, Martians and little green men and flying saucers. Even the most enterprising investigative writer wanting to get into it, you're going to be made fun of. You're going to look silly. You think we're going to publish that? You know, we're a serious newspaper. And so it went for decade after decade. Right. Um, again, right now, I think certain personalities um, are dominating the scene more than certain cases are. Um, you have people like um, Louis Elizondo, who I really wondered about at first, Um you know, former special forces guy, uh, learns about this subject, is in charge of security and aspects of it, 
it's so easy to say, oh, well, you know, he's a government guy. He's going to take this position. And for all of those kind of people who support the, they're all good. Welcome the Space Brothers. In the extreme, it's like, you know, this is this is the way, you know, human beings are at their worst. They want to blow them up and they just want to come here and help us and join the Federation and evolve and, you know, have a good life on Earth and help us fight climate change and all that. Well, it's a noble idea, but extreme is extreme. Um, the fact is, right now, um, the... The evolved version of um, um, Edgar Mitchell's uh, foundation um, has documented more and more cases of individuals who I think are sincere and telling the truth as best they know it and experienced it overall, who have had very positive contact experiences, transcendent ones. Um, but there's, I see a push on the part of people who want people to know this, and it's important to know it, who are seeing conflicting data, which is just as authentic. I know it in part because I helped put it together or worked around the people that did for years, that many people are traumatized by these experiences. And it doesn't have to do whether they're good or bad. It's the nature of the experience for some people that they see them as bad, and Elizondo as, you know, a militarist who's just interested in weaponizing and, you know, getting ready to, you know, a la Independence Day, shoot these motherfuckers out of the skies. I ultimately find him to be a man of um, very honorable intent, um, who is sincere in his efforts to get to the bottom of things as much as he can to make these subjects as public as possible, which um, has, I'm sure, set up certain people within government who are not happy uh, about his activities. And um, I, I wish him well in his work. At the same time, the folks that are seeing themselves on the opposite extreme of this is, it's a good phenomena, you know, and they're good. Well, it's so oversimplifying first to start by thinking that there's a there as opposed to a them. It's as innocent and kind of goofy to think that we're the only, I'll laughingly say evolved living creatures in the universe <laughs> as much as it's to say, Oh, there's one other group out there and they found us and they're coming and going. You know what? there's probably a whole bunch of them coming and going with different feelings about humanity, with different relationships with us, going back to time immemorial in some cases. We may be somebody's graduate experiment or doctoral thesis gone horribly wrong. In fact, we're I doing... I think that's probably true. Yeah. You know, allegorically or actually, um, there's, there's this human desire to see things in terms of bad or good. Um, and again, there are people in the work who are so fucking irresponsible and so mystical and so ego driven as to make statements like all aliens are good. Well, how the fuck do you know that <laughs> um, 
if you were the you're on a roll tonight, Peter, the head of 18 alien races and the president of the United States and the head of the NSA and the head of every other intelligence organization for every first world government in the world, all melded into one being. You couldn't know that for an empirical fact. The other thing, there are 57 alien races visiting us. (laughs) It's so irresponsible and it's so counterproductive Mm -hmm. and people see it for what it is, unless you are in this cult mentality, quite literally. And it just takes down the rest of us and makes us look really superficial and kind of stupid and at best well-meaning believers who, you know, how do you know these things? Well, I have a deep contact within the intelligence community or they told me and who knows, maybe they did and maybe they're right. But look at the big picture and see how this impacts on ideally a growing public serious awareness heading toward what I would call um, a critical mass or a tipping point in the general population. I worked in theater management off Broadway for years. I loved it. Working with live actors, nothing like it in the world. It was so much fun. And it paid so badly. And I never worked with more interesting, wonderful people in my life who would go out there every night, you know, six nights a week and twice a week on Wednesdays and Saturdays and do live theater. It's like combat. You know, you you could crash and burn. It doesn't matter how intense or risky any scene is in any movie that you have ever seen with rarest exceptions. You're in a closed set, whatever risks you're taking, you can do it again, or you will do it again until the director is satisfied with your performance. Anyway, I bring it up because our nonprofit theater company, a mirror repertory company, I got to work with Tony Award winners and Academy Award winners. I was so proud of my part in that organization. And our specialty was reviving old plays that you knew the likelihood was overwhelmingly they were going to lose money, but they were important plays for one reason or another and remounting them off Broadway with wonderful casts. But I remember this is what I mean by critical mass. Uh, For a number of years, we worked out of a state of the art theater in the East fifties with over a little over 200 seats And at one point, we were doing a revival of what was the biggest comedy play on Broadway in 1919. It was a comedy of manners and society about a returning World War I veteran who falls in love with a young woman uh, who comes from a wealthy Irish family that owns a furniture factory in New Jersey, and they have Irish servants, ha-ha. And it was written by an author who was brilliant in his time, still is, but just as, you know, nobody reads his work anymore, Booth Talkington. Well, the play was hysterical. It was genuinely funny for a contemporary audience. It was. And I remember once it was up in previews and we had full houses, I'm theater manager patrolling the hallway there, checking fire exits, whatever. And I hear a sound coming from the theater 
and um, I'm not familiar with it. So I open the back door. It's the sound of about 210 people laughing so hard they were losing their breath. Now, that's a great sound. And I'm describing a great moment. Why am I bringing it up? Because once the play was up and running, it was, say, a Thursday night, and it was raining like hell. And there were 59 people in the theater. People are funny. They, they need a certain amount of other bodies to behave in a certain way. If you're going to hear, you know, your favorite in-your-face rock group, huge venue, you know, it's whatever, you know, your metalhead desires are, and you're going there and you are totally pumped up, and there are 83 people in the audience, <laughs> and it's a stadium, and it fits 40,000, you can't get into the same head, you can't, that you would with thousands of other people around you creating this group dynamic. Anyway, what I realized was at a certain point, you needed an exact number, give or take, of people in that theater to really let go and laugh in a completely unselfconscious way. And below that number, people would feel a little self-conscious. They'd laugh, but not like that. And that's what we are moving toward allegorically. Mm-hmm. And it's slow going. I think sometimes people in my field, maybe you guys too, have encountered this. You know, we at times like this were surrounded by like-minded people. And it's like, yes, UFO disclosure now, I can deal with it. I think the people around me can. Well, guess what? This is how much of the general population we still represent. I don't right. care. You know, they'll right. get, you know get into it. Well, you know what? I don't think that way. That's not the way I function. And I, I think it's disrespectful. You've got a lot of decent people out there who aren't as obsessed about these subjects or at all as we are, right? who are open-minded about it, if probably presented with it, but they are very busy raising their families, paying their bills, all the regular human yeah. stuff that's not, you know, as dramatic and sexy. This is the thing, Peter, like I, when everybody started talking about disclosure as we've gone through the pandemic, I'm just like sitting here like, okay, like there's bigger things going on than this. Uh, you know, there's a global pandemic happening right now. So One th- yeah, it, exactly. <laughs> and the thing about disclosure, I would like to see it as much as anybody, but how do you stage it in a manner that presents material in a credible and responsible way without overloading people's circuits. I mean, you can't dig half a hole, can you? At the same time, how do you say we're not alone? There are other intelligences, some stress, some, not all. UFO phenomena is representative of intelligences and way advanced technology from another dimension another solar system, another part of the cosmos, whatever, without people saying, well, I saw this documentary. I mean, uh, that's as accept. I can accept this, but it's wild. But what about, you know, hybrid babies? And what about UFO abductions? That freaks me out. I don't know how to answer the question. And as we kind of come into the end of our time right now, uh, we are in one of the most challenging moments in human history on a certain level. 
yes, we are appropriately, hopefully, for me, concerned with the dynamics of this pandemic, which a lot of people thought would be in a flash in the pan. And now we are in our fourth wave of it in certain parts of the country. And I think less than three, less than 3% of everybody living on the African subcontinent has not even received one dose of vaccine yet. If you're an anti-vaxxer, that probably sounds good to you. If you're not, it's very problematic and very concerning. It's easy to, you know, stay occupied in your own head, in your own particular obsession. But we're all here on earth right now, and we still should be doing our best to be decent people and caring to other people. And when in doubt, be kind. Everybody's carrying around their own major load. And whether it's paranormal research or dissemination of information or UFO research and responsible uh, dissemination of information, never let it get in the way of your humanity or over-prioritize itself of just doing your best here and now in a human way and ideally contributing to this work in great part because that's who you are. You're known as a UFO guy, but if people get to know you, they know that you have been around the block a few times and you've had such a, um, your hand in like the theater and then like, you know, association with your sister, with Helen and, uh, and like that, um, hanging out at CBGBs and all that, you know, back in the day, which was really cool to like, you know, see some of the slides that you had from that time period. Really I'll tell you, I'm in closing, if it gives me any extra credibility, uh, I am certainly the only person in the history of ufology that I am aware of who has been invited to sing Don't Fear the Reaper on the stage with the Blue Oyster Cult. Oh, yeah. See, they did not get Dr. Stephen Greer to do that, right? He's not qualified. <laughs> He's not qualified. <laughs> I don't think they'd ask him. Awesome. Very cool. Peter, uh, tell everybody where they could find uh, your website and also uh, where they can find Meanwhile here on Earth. Yeah. Um, my website right now is hopefully hopelessly outdated, and I'm too embarrassed to give the URL. It will be updated. I hope by the time we're together again, I may have a beginning presence on Patreon. In the meantime, um, connect with me uh, on my Facebook, there are, believe it or not, other Peter Robbinses in the world, one who is a good friend of mine. Um, I am the Peter Robbins in Ithaca, New York. Mostly, though, right now, if you would, please consider subscribing to Meanwhile Here on Earth. Um, it is a radio show that is on every Monday night for two hours from 7 to 9 Eastern Standard on KGRA Digital Broadcasting. And if you subscribe using my name as your password in subscribing, it's 30% off the list price, bringing it down to about four and a half dollars a month, less than many podcasts. Although, again, it's a live radio show. You can listen live at no cost by going to the KGRA digital broadcasting, KGRADB.com website and listen. Uh, however, it's usually a very heavily illustrated show. You can watch the first half hour of the two-hour show each week on their website 
I think on YouTube as well, and they've just made some changes there. But if you subscribe, it also gives you access to probably several thousand other archived shows on UFOs and the paranormal. And obviously, you can listen anytime, day or night. And I will say this because one of the biggest jokes in ufology is, oh, you're in it for the money. (laughs) Please. (laughs) I am one of those people who worked really my whole business life in the nonprofits, in theater, as a teacher, in ufology, a great way to get rich. And right now, um, I'm looking to generate income. And it would be nice if I could do it doing this kind of thing. So for what it's worth, um, if you subscribe at, say, $50 a year or $4.5 a month, I get $1 for each subscriber that I signs up with my name, uh, a check every month. This is a new program that they're starting. So if there are 18 of you, I am having dinner. Thank you very much. But I'd like to think, you know, six months or a year from now, you can be helping me pay my bills. And I will continue to give you quality programming. I'll also tell you, if you just want to check it out and see what I'm doing on the air this uh, almost a year now, well, since December, um, you can find old shows before this turnover happened on YouTube. Just go to YouTube and type in Meanwhile here on Earth at least 60 hours of programming in there so you know you don't have to subscribe if you don't want to and um thank you in advance but that's where i'm making my biggest stand right now and i'm very proud of the work that i'm doing it and i have to say as somebody relatively new to broadcasting um part of my inspiration in it is friends like adam and soraya and you know, Ryan Sprague and Rich Dolan and so many colleagues who are regularly on the air. This is a new venture for me, but I've had 40 years of training to get ready for it. And I'm pretty good. Yeah. And as far as your website, you need to get your uh, webmaster on getting that uh, that updated. Get him, You'll do. Get, well, get him in gear. Tell him I told you. That. <laughs> it's It's been my fault for not getting on his case. Um, we've both been really busy and... As cat lovers concerned with cats, uh, he's yeah. been having a pretty stressful year. But yeah, a great guy and a great broadcaster and one of the great minds, too, in paranormal work. I'll tell you, yeah. way to go, Soraya. And hopefully he will be uh, in Nashville with us at uh, the Strange Realities Conference. All right, Peter, thank you so much. We're going to uh, close out this section. And uh, guys, we'll be right back to close out the show uh, on Conspiracy Normal. All right, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, guys. We're going to co- close out the show. I want to thank Peter Robbins for coming to join us. Uh, and Chris Corey, thank you for joining us as well. Always a pleasure. Gonna, I think we're going to try to do a Patreon on something here in just a little <laughs> bit, but we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, so 
just um, the usual spiel, guys. Strange Realities Conference is still in effect in Nashville and online. At this point, it's probably too late if you're coming from another place besides Nashville, but there are still tickets available. So if you are in Nashville, uh, sign up, come see us. We will be at SAR SIR rehearsal studios, um, October 15th through the 17th and also is going to be streamed online. And, uh, Chris Corey is going to be there. He's going to make an appearance. You might see me whether yeah, you like it or not. <laughs> you you might get to see him. So, but uh, on the next episode, we're actually going to be starting to do our previews with some of the speakers from the conference, and we will also be streaming those live on YouTube and onto Facebook. So, uh, come join us next, starting at uh, seven p.m. Central um, on the twenty first, which I think. Yeah, that'll this will come out a couple of days before that. So you guys will get to see that. So strangerealitiesconference.com. Um in-person tickets are seventy dollars. Like I said, there are probably there are about twelve of those left as of this point because we're restricting those to forty. And when you come, yes, there will be checking vaccine cards are proof of a negative test because you don't necessarily have to have a vaccine card to get in. Um yeah, we are and not forcing anyone to get vaccinated, but you that's will not right. be that's right. spreading the sickness at yeah. our event. So yeah, and uh, but also there are plenty of online tickets available, and you can join us online as well. So sign up for those. Those are only thirty dollars, and that's for twenty-one speakers over the course of three days, starting Friday night. It's five p.m. Central Time, running all the way till. At about nine o'clock Central Time on Sunday, so come join us. Uh, and also, we still have our Patreon. If you guys want to check that out, Sirfiel can tell you how to find that. You can continue the conversation with us at Patreon.com/slash/ConspiraNormal for only five dollars a week. You can join the International Association of Conspiranormalism and begin your journey into self-discovery and conspiranormalism. Uh, you'll get an extra episode every week as well as a a large button that uh, proclaims your membership to the order. Uh, for $10 a month, you can join our Mystic Crew, and we have kind of our own little mini strange realities every month where we have someone give a exclusive presentation, and uh, it's a good time to be able to meet some of your favorite conspiranormal guests and personalities that revolve around the show. Uh, for $20 and up, you can join the ancient circle of strange realities and receive one of these t-shirts like I'm wearing uh, and learn the final secrets of conspiranormalism, of course. The final secrets. Patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Right, and I should add that um, we will be doing a meet up on september 24th for the um for the patrons do we so, have a confirmed speaker yet yeah kiki dombrowski okay we'll cool. be practicing her uh presentation she is going to give as strange reality so you guys will get a little bit of a preview if you join up for our ten dollar and up patrons so all right guys that's it uh join us next week we will be streaming live and of course that will be also posted up as a podcast form on 
inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.